evidence and answers. Were the Gospels really written by those closest to Jesus? Skeptics conclude that they can't possibly be accurate. But what do you say? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on the show, Pat will continue in sharing what critics are saying about the Gospels, and he will dispel their inaccuracies. Here with part two of a three-part message is our host, Pat Zucran. We've been going through our series on answering some of the toughest challenges presented by skeptics today. Once again, for a brief review... One of the criticisms we hear today is that the Jesus taught in the churches today is not the true Jesus of history. There's a popular idea being presented today that the historical Jesus is not the same Jesus that is being presented in the New Testament and in the church today. And the proponents of this argument point to alleged contradictions and errors in the New Testament, the Gospels in particular. And some of the most challenging arguments come from men who have studied the scriptures, who once served in the ministry of Christ and since then have become disillusioned with the Bible and have either left the ministry or remain agnostic, still serving in ministry. After studying several of their websites and reading their material, I've chosen some of the most popular and most challenging criticisms from the critics and have been addressing them in this particular series. The first two we went over is that the Gospels are forgeries, that we do not know who the authors are. And the second is that the deity of Christ is not presented in the first three Gospels, but only in the Gospel of John. We covered those two in a previous show. Now let's cover the next objection here. The next objection is quite an interesting one. It states that the apostles of Jesus seem to have known nothing about the virgin birth, that perhaps the virgin birth is of a legendary sort created later by the later writers. The critics here state that the earliest mention of the birth of Jesus was written not in Matthew and Luke, but in Paul's letters to the Romans. Paul wrote this after having met with Peter and others who had known in person not only Jesus, but also his mother and brothers. Despite learning from them, Paul shows no signs of having heard of a virgin birth. Instead, he wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, that Jesus was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God, not through any special birth that Paul mentions, but by his resurrection. The nativity stories in Matthew and Luke, suggesting that Jesus had a virgin birth in Bethlehem, were composed later, and even his own apostles showed no indication of knowing anything about it. Well, that's the allegation that is leveled here, that the virgin birth is not mentioned in any of Paul's letters. Well, first of all, we must mention that the virgin birth is mentioned by Matthew, who is an apostle, and by Luke, who is a companion of Paul. And in fact, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes the gospel of Luke. So we can see that While Paul was alive, he knew the Gospel of Luke and quoted the Gospel of Luke in 1 Timothy 5, 18. Therefore, you can build a good case that Paul knew of the events of the life of Christ and the virgin birth of Christ because the Gospel of Luke had to have been around in order for Paul to quote the Gospel of Luke. Next, you must understand the purpose of Paul's letters. 
Paul is not writing a biography of the life of Christ. Paul is writing letters to the early churches explaining doctrines and addressing problems in the local churches. Therefore, we should not expect a detailed description of Christ's life as we find in the Gospels, whose writers were writing a biography of the life of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul builds on the life of Christ and the doctrines that he teaches should be consistent with the gospel accounts. We should not find teachings that contradict the gospels. So we should not expect a detailed account of the life of Christ, but we should find consistency of Paul's teachings with the life of Christ as recorded in the gospels. So we should not be expecting comprehensiveness, but consistency. Just because Paul does not mention Christ's virgin birth does not mean he was not aware of it or does not believe it. It was not necessary in the issues that Paul was addressing in his letters. So we should not be judging on what details of Christ's life are not in his letters, but rather are the teachings of Paul consistent with the life of Christ as recorded in the Gospels. And we would have a serious problem if Paul says Christ was not born of a virgin, or Christ was not resurrected from the dead, or Christ was not the divine Son of God, then we would have serious problems. But we do not see Paul rejecting the virgin birth. In fact, the doctrines that he teaches are consistent with the account of Christ's life as presented in the gospel. So we're not looking for comprehensiveness. We're looking for consistency, and that's what we have in Paul's letters. Now, the passage quoted Romans 1.3 does not contradict the Gospels, but is consistent with the Gospels. The passage reads, Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection, from the dead. Well, there's nothing in this passage that denies or rejects the virgin birth. Paul here, on one of his many verses, affirms the deity of Christ in two ways. First, regarding the human nature of Christ, Jesus is a descendant of King David, thus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, such as 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, that indeed from David's seed, shall come the messianic ruler of God's kingdom. So Paul argues that Christ is the divine son of God because he fulfills that prophecy. Christ being 100% God, but also 100% man. And his human lineage, he is a descendant of King David. Paul then argues that the case for Christ's deity is further established by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the two arguments he uses to affirm the deity of Christ. Paul could have used more, but does not see it necessary to do so in the introduction to the book of Romans. Therefore, just because he does not mention the virgin birth does not necessarily mean he does not know of it. This passage affirms the deity of Christ and in no way rejects or denies the virgin birth. So throughout Paul's letters, he affirms key events in the life of Christ especially the events regarding the death and resurrection of Christ, and does not present material that contradict the Gospels. Just because there are no events and details about Christ's life, such as the virgin birth, 
does not mean Paul does not believe in them or was not aware of them. These details were not relevant to the issues he was addressing in his letters. Remember, Paul is not writing a biography of the life of Christ. He's writing on doctrines and addressing issues in the church. So we should not be looking for comprehensiveness, but consistency with the Gospels. The next allegation leveled is this, that Jesus intended to found a religion for Jews only and not to include the Gentiles. Here is the argument presented by the critic. He states this, The fact that Christianity has become a religion largely of Gentiles who literally worship Jesus is a huge irony because in his ministry, Jesus said he intended to offer Gentiles nothing. Matthew 10.5 shows Jesus giving his disciples firm instructions to go nowhere among the Gentiles. In Matthew 15, when a woman who was indisputably a Gentile asked for healing for her daughter, Jesus initially ignored her. She was so persistent with her pleas that his apostles wanted to silence her, but they didn't ask Jesus to do that by helping her. Instead, knowing his attitude toward the Gentiles, they urged him to send her away. When she finally knelt before Jesus, making it impossible to continue to ignore her, he told her he was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He then made clear that he considered her as a Gentile to be no better than a dog, adding that it wasn't fair for dogs to receive food intended for children. Only when she pointed out that even the dogs eat crumbs from their master's table did Jesus praise her for her faith and give her the help that she wanted. Further evidence that Jesus had a harsh attitude towards Gentiles comes from the fact that after his death, resistance from his disciples caused Paul problems in his Gentile conversion efforts. Christianity eventually became a religion of Gentiles, not because of any personal outreach to them by Jesus during his lifetime, but because of the work of Paul and the fact that most Jews whom Jesus was really reaching out to rejected it. So was the intention of Jesus to establish a religion for the Jews only and it was not his intention to reach the Gentiles? Well, let's take a look at that. When you look at the ministry of Christ, you must understand that it was Jesus' desire to reach the Jews first, then the Gentiles, that the blessings would come through Israel, through whom the covenant promises are given, and it's through Israel, God's intention was that the entire world, Jew and Gentile, be blessed. And so Jesus' ministry was to the Jews first, then it would go to the Gentiles, but not exclusively to the Jews only. See, understanding Jesus' desire to reach the Jews before the Gentiles comes from an understanding of his mission and the way that God would redeem not just Israel, but the entire world. God's desire was to redeem the world, but it would begin with the nation of Israel, for that is the reason Israel was created. If you look at the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, God chose Abraham to father a nation. And it is through this nation, the text states, that the entire world would be blessed. And it is through this nation God established his everlasting covenant. So in order to fulfill these covenant promises to Abraham and to David, 
the offer of the kingdom is given to the Jews first and the blessings to the world comes first to Israel and then to the entire world. Therefore, the offer of the kingdom must first be given to the nation of Israel. For it is upon David's throne and in the city of Jerusalem from which the Messiah will rule. The coming of God's kingdom then is contingent on Israel accepting their Messiah, not the Gentiles accepting Jesus. If the Jews received their king, the kingdom and its blessings would come not just to Israel, but to the entire world. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says, When the kingdom is established, nations will come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Isaiah chapter 2 states that in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. The covenants that are given to the Jewish people are to be fulfilled and the Messiah shall rule on David's throne and from Jerusalem the law of the Lord shall go forth and the entire world will be blessed. One must remember the promise given by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that the messianic kingdom would be ruled by a descendant of David who would rule in Jerusalem. So it was Jesus' intention that the gospel go to the entire world. But his first mission field was to be the nation of Israel. For remember, the coming of the kingdom is contingent upon Israel receiving her king. Jesus therefore offered himself to Israel, but eventually they rejected him as their king. Matthew chapter 12 speaks of the final rejection. And after this rejection, Jesus begins to teach in parables, teaching that the kingdom has temporarily, not permanently, but temporarily bypassed Israel and be directly offered to the Gentile world. These parables also pronounce judgment upon the nation of Israel for rejecting her king and the offer of the kingdom which he brought. Now, after his resurrection, Jesus sends his disciples to the entire world. So Jesus' offer began with Israel, and despite their rejection and failure, the gospel does go to the entire world as Jesus desired, just not through Israel at this time as he wanted. Now, regarding the Gentile woman who asked for healing in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus stated, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, that seems kind of harsh that Jesus seemed to be unwilling to heal this woman's daughter. That seems kind of harsh. But there's something more going on in the things which Jesus stated. Jesus' statement reflects his mission, which is that the kingdom must be offered to Israel, for the kingdom blessings will come to all when Israel receives her king. 
But the woman does not give up, but continues in her pleading. When Jesus responded, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Here Jesus is explaining that the kingdom blessings belong first to the nation of Israel. However, the woman responds that even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Her response shows she accepts and understands the mission of Jesus, that his priority was the nation of Israel. But she points out the mission's ultimate goal is that through Israel, the entire world would be blessed. The woman was appealing to that ultimate goal, that the Gentiles could and would one day share in the blessings after Israel. So Jesus could have been testing the woman's faith by drawing her out or seeing if she understood the mission of Jesus Christ was to offer the kingdom first to the Jews and it is through Israel the blessings would come to the entire world. After displaying an understanding of this, it is then that Jesus acknowledges the woman's faith and heals her daughter. So she, like the centurion, foreshadows the time when Israel receives her king and the kingdom blessing extends to all of the world. So Jesus did not want to establish a religion exclusively for Jews and Jews only. His intention was that the kingdom blessings go to the entire world. But the covenant blessings, the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7, the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter 12, must all be fulfilled. The kingdom blessings would come through Israel. The Messiah would be Jewish. He would be a descendant of David and rule on David's throne in the city of Jerusalem. That's why he went to the Jews first. And it is through Israel the blessings would come to the entire world. And it's Jesus' ultimate goal that the entire world would be blessed, Jew and Gentile. But it would first go through Israel. Now, when you understand that, you understand the mission of Jesus and the context in which he said some of these things. Let's take a look at the next argument presented by the critics here. And that is, the resurrection appearances in the Gospels have irreconcilable differences. Now, this critic writes this. He says, The Gospel accounts of the resurrection appearances of Jesus differ substantially, including where the risen Jesus is said to have appeared to his apostles. The Gospels of Matthew and Mark place the appearances solely in Galilee. However, Luke, as well as the book of Acts, has Jesus appearing only in and around Jerusalem. To add to the confusion, the Gospel of John shows Jesus appearing in both Galilee and Jerusalem. The actual appearance of a resurrected Jesus would have been so stunning that it raises the question of why there was not even one record of such an event that made a deep enough impression to be passed down in all the Gospels. Now, the critic here alleges that the Gospels have irreconcilable differences regarding the resurrection. He states that Matthew and Mark placed the appearances solely in Galilee. However, Luke, as well as the book of Acts, have Jesus appearing only in and around Jerusalem. Later, he states, to add to the confusion, John shows Jesus appearing in both Galilee and Jerusalem. Well, when understood in their chronological order, there are reasonable explanations to the, quote, apparent irreconcilable differences. When you put the gospel accounts in their chronological order, we can understand the order of events. 
the resurrected Jesus first appears to the women in Jerusalem, according to Matthew, Mark, and John. Then Jesus appears to two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus, as recorded in Luke chapter 24. These two disciples return to Jerusalem, proclaiming what they have seen to the apostles, and that's where Jesus appears to Peter in Luke chapter 24. Then Jesus appears to the disciples again who are gathered in a room in Jerusalem. Then eight days later in Jerusalem, Jesus appears to Thomas in John chapter 20. And that's where he makes his famous statement to Thomas, put your fingers in the nail prints of my hands. And that is where Thomas makes that famous statement. He looks at Jesus and says to him, my Lord and my God. Now, after the appearances in Jerusalem, the disciples go to Galilee as instructed by Jesus. And there, some of them return to their life of fishing. John 21 then records Jesus' appearance to Peter, Nathaniel, James, and John while they are fishing, and they make that miraculous catch of fish. Then it is at a mountain in Galilee that Jesus gives the Great Commission as recorded in Matthew chapter 28. Then the disciples returned to Jerusalem where Jesus instructed them to go. And that is where he gives his final words as recorded in Acts chapter 1 and then ascends to heaven. Most of Matthew and Mark's resurrection appearances of Jesus are in Galilee, while Luke's appearances are mostly in Jerusalem. While John recorded the resurrections in Jerusalem and Galilee, now, although they focus the resurrection appearances in two different places, the differences are not irreconcilable when you put them in chronological order, nor are they contradictory. So when put in chronological order here, there are reasonable explanations for the alleged apparent differences. And in fact, the alleged contradictions seem to disappear once you put them in its proper chronological order. Another alleged irreconcilable difference regarding the death and resurrection account is the time of Christ's death. Skeptics point out that in Mark's gospel, the account says that it was the third hour when Christ was crucified, whereas John's gospel, it says it was the sixth hour when Jesus was still on trial. Therefore, which one is it? There seems to be a contradiction here. If Jesus was crucified on the third hour, many say that would be 9 a.m., and if he was on trial the sixth hour, 12 noon, that he was still on trial. So critics point out that we have a contradiction here. Well, when you understand the context, both writers are correct in their assertions. The difficulty is answered when we realize that each gospel writer used a different time system. John follows the Roman time system, while Mark follows the Jewish time system. Now, according to the Roman time, a day ran from midnight to midnight. According to Jewish time, the day ended at 6 p.m., sundown, and it began at sunrise at 6 a.m. So when Mark says that it was at the third hour Christ was crucified, this would be about 9 a.m. John stated that Christ's trial was about the sixth hour. This would place the trial before the crucifixion. And therefore, there would not be a contradiction here. 
John going by the Roman time, when he says the sixth hour, the trial of Jesus took place at 6 a.m. Mark saying, going by the Jewish time, when Jesus was crucified on the third hour, the Jewish clock begins at 6 a.m., so Christ was crucified at 9 a.m. So both are correct. Jesus was tried at 6 in the morning before the sun came up, and he was placed upon the cross at 9 a.m. So the alleged contradiction is explained when you understand that John is going by Roman time and Mark is following the Jewish time system. And that problem is resolved. Well, I hope you're enjoying this series of answering the critics' challenge regarding the Gospels and the life of Jesus Christ. I hope you'll join us again when we tackle some more of the toughest challenges presented by critics today regarding the credibility of Jesus Christ and the Gospels. I hope you'll join us again here on Evidence and Answers. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. Be sure to join us next time for the continuation of this exciting show. If you find this broadcast to be a blessing, please consider partnering with us. Evidence and Answers relies on generous donations from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. You'll also find there on our website a wide variety of resources available to you, including audio and exciting articles. Evidence and Answers is grateful for our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions. To learn more, visit their website. That's hcmlp.com. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide reasons for faith and hope in Christ, right here on Evidence and Answers. Praise